<laughs> oh my goodness. Y'all all right? We're going to dive into a new series today. Is that all right? All right. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Um, we were actually going to do another series, but um, took a little detour. And Pastor Deuce and I ended up taking a detour on a, seems like the Lord was leading us a, a different direction. Um, we are going to start a book that I, I don't know if I've ever heard done verse by verse um, and kind of walk through. Um, and, you know, here we like to, you know, we, we, we kind of try to switch it up. We try to, you know, do it line by line. We try to do a doctrine. You, uh, 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 you know, we, we try to switch it up on practical, whatever. We try to dive into those different things. And so today we, we're going to start back a, into a short book, the book of First Peter. Um, um, we, we're going to start, I think it's time. It's, it's time for this book. I've been probably meditating on First Peter since I became a Christian. Both of the Peters um, did a bunch of papers on them when I was in seminary. But um, First Peter is, is one of those highly theological yet extremely practical books. And, and we're going to call this series Young Disciples Facing Grown-Up Issues. Young Disciples Facing Grown-Up Issues. Um, we, 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 we feel like, <laughs> y'all, wow. Uh, but I, I think that, that picture kind of says it for us. Um, that, that, that we are in a society, we're in a place right now, and especially as Pivotal Fellowship, I'm, I'm finding out so many people are trusting Jesus as Savior, coming to faith in him, and I'm seeing um, believers who have been in the faith for a while who've felt like their spiritual life has been stagnant. Um, 20, 30 years in the faith and really feel like in the last few years or months that they've been experiencing renewal. So when I say young disciples, I'm not just talking about people who are physically young, but those who are spiritually young. Um, and, 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 and first Peter is one of those books that I think helps capture that reality because Peter walks them through a smokish, a smokish board of issues. And so the people of First Peter, I believe, were dealing with many, 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 many issues as it relates to their spiritual growth, as it's related to their development, and really trying to navigate and make sense of life. These believers were experiencing persecution and social, uh, being socially ostracized in light of their faith, but uh, the Emperor Nero was, was glazing believers down with oil, and, and, and he was lighting them ablaze as, as halogen light bulbs for his gardens. He, he, these people, well, some of them were new believers in Asia Minor, Bithynia, it, 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 we'll, we'll walk through it in a second, and he was using them as lights, and these believers, I can, I can only imagine what they were dealing with. So many of them were new believers. Some of them had been in the faith and began, they got scattered to these different areas. And they began asking the question, what in the world have I gotten myself into? See, I know in our world we teach Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. The abundant life includes a whole bunch of things which... We're going to get into, because I think Peter lays out practically a comprehensive understanding of the abundant life. And I think many Christians 
Many people in their gospel presentations and altar calls tend to dupe people into thinking the Christian life is something that it really isn't. And then when people start walking with Jesus, they're confused. Because the gospel that was preached doesn't match up with the practical frustrations that they're facing in their everyday life. And so some people, if you're a real believer, if you really got converted, you're like, you're like um, Lord, what's the deal? Now, now, those who ain't real believers, they just fall back, walk away and say, I knew this was a fluke anyway. But it goes back to the original gospel presentation that was given to us. That's why we have to be very careful in how we share Jesus with people, because it influences how they practically relate to the Christian life. Very practical. Very, most people think theology is just some esoteric, weighty information that has absolutely no result, no relationship, no connection to my practical life. But when you look at First Peter, he, he, he fronts on that reality for us and helps us. My man Peter, we, before we even get into the book, we got to talk about my man Pete a little bit. You know what I'm saying? We got to do a little, a little um, character introduction on my man Peter. I mean, you got to understand, you know, you know, this this letter was, of course, written by Peter. Um, Most people don't protest his authority. But what's interesting is you got Peter. He was a former businessman, fisherman, grimy fisherman dude. Um, He used to have a foul mouth. You know what I'm saying? In light of, you know, you know, him cursing the people out who said he was associated with Jesus Christ. So he was a former businessman, grimy dude that was used to scaling fists, cleaning nets, um, doing books for business. I mean, I mean, I mean, it doesn't get no more real than this dude who was running basically a storefront mom and pop business with a little boat on the Sea of Galilee, sleeves rolled. I mean, he like one of the cats around here that got like such a hand. I don't know if y'all been around the block and looked at some of the businesses out there, but it's real ground floor. It ain't, it ain't no, it ain't no Fortune 500 type business. You know what I'm saying? Like Peter wasn't running. The only time he had Fortune 500 success is when Jesus was trying to reel him in. But other than that, he, he, he understood the pace of fishing, that it took pace. So, I mean, he, fishing was probably in his blood, and he thought all he would do for the rest of his life was fish, be on the Sea of Galilee, and wait on the Messiah to come. But then one day he had the craziest encounter where his brother, I don't know if it was his little brother or his big brother, Big Drew came through, and Andrew was like, was like, was like, yo, man, you got to meet this dude that I think he's the Messiah. And so, you know, Andrew was a little bit of a spiritual fanatic. And Peter was like, all right, I'm waiting till the business closing. Then I'm going to hit up with. He went, and as soon as he met Jesus for the first time, he was rocked, thrown off of his Richter, blown away by the fact that this is the Son of God. But then he went back to fishing, you know. Went back to fishing for a minute. Then Jesus came up. And beyond just calling him to salvation, he called him in deeper. And you see in Luke where Jesus comes to him and calls him in deeper by causing him to put his nets in the water, grab a bunch of fish. And it was funny. Peter didn't say, dang, I I like this dude because he lets me catch a bunch of fish that I can sell and make loot. When they pulled the fishing net in and it was breaking, he dropped the fishing net and ran to Jesus. And he said, 
get away from me because I'm a sinner. I don't think he got the same message that we get when he got the gospel and when he met Jesus he didn't fall into the trap of wanting the resources that Jesus gives. He came to Jesus throwing himself on the mercy of his ruler. And so when we read 1 Peter, we've got a man who's been in the faith now for about 30 plus years. He's been beaten several times. He's one of the first among equals among the elders of the church of Jerusalem. He's seen people come. He's seen people go. He's seen large crowds. He's seen small crowds. He's been locked up. He's seen his boys that he rode and died with die for the gospel. So he's an old head, 30 years in the game plus, and he's writing two of the only uh, letters that we would say is God breathe. And a few years after this, he's hung upside down on a cross with the blood rushing to his brain, and he's crucified, just like his Lord, but just like Jesus prophesied. So we're looking at the first among equals, the leader, the lead, one of the lead pastors of the church of Jerusalem, and he's writing a letter to God's people. And he's probably been through Asia Minor a couple of times, chopped it up with the people of God there, tradition says. And he feels the need to specifically write them because of what's going on with them. And I like what Peter starts off with. Today, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to rush through First Peter. Is that okay? I, I want to take some time and work through some concepts that are not just for us to be impressive with words and syntax and grammar. But I, but I want to walk through, because I think what we're going to talk about today I think it's very, very key for every individual, every believer to get in their mind. When we get to greetings and the books of the Bible, don't rush past them so fast. When Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away before a jot and tittle of, in other words, the, le the least stroke, in other words, Jesus is saying every word in the Bible counts. And so turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we are going to spend some time in just two verses. And I want to zoom us in on several words. And I think I just have two points today that we just want to extract from this verse. And we can extract so many things from this, but I just want to spend time on two points. Y'all with me? And, 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 so, and, so, and so when we look at this, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, wow, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I, I, I want to talk for a little while today on stability in an unstable world. How to get stability in an unstable 
where these believers here are facing insurmountable odds, odds of in-depth instability in their lives, in their Christian lives, like we said. And so Peter begins in his salutation or his greeting, as we would say, he, he's starting off to walk God's people through a process. He doesn't just jump to the pragmatics. I like this. Peter zooms them in to their theological identity in Jesus. Because without understanding who you are, whose you are, and what your purpose is, abuse is inevitable. And so because of to stop abuse from being inevitable in their Christian life, my man Pete takes time to give them, like, don't skip over these words. Uh, uh, he's, he's, he says here, he says, to those who are elect exiles. Stop there. Beautiful, beautiful description to describe who we are in Christ, which brings me to point number one of two points. The life of the Christian is comfortably uncomfortable. The life of the Christian is comfortably uncomfortable. <laughs> Peter here does something great for us. He, he dives in and he first calls us, after he describes who he is, he describes one of the things that we are. He calls the believers in Asia Minor elect exiles. Now the word elect is where we get our word from, of course, elect, electos, which, which means to choose, to choose, to, 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 to set aside for a specific purpose. It's, it's in relation to God's act of choosing these people, particularly in this text and us, in eternity past by, uh, but with reference to their present historical existence and their final vindication. So it points back to the fact that God chose them without looking at them, but by his own sovereign pleasure. Hard for us, some of us to deal with that issue because we love to add stakes to the pole in our salvation. But the Bible clearly teaches that out of God's own sovereign prerogative, he chose. But, but this, the, the word elect here isn't, stay with me, because I'm going somewhere with all this. Elect here is it, it, really not just to point them back to the fact that God chose them. But it's to give them clarity right now. <laughs> See, in other words, they were going through stuff that made them wonder. And so, before he said, everything is going to be all right, you know what I'm saying? He, before he said, ooh, child, things are, he didn't say that. He didn't say, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I pray against the devil's work in their life to pull them out of each other. No, he didn't say that. He says, you're chosen. You, 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 you're, you're elect. You're chosen. Don't get it twisted. Your choice. Ah, even in the midst of the struggles, even in the midst of the frustration, even in the midst of the confusion, you're chosen. Yeah, I know that sounds crazy. Like, why in the world would you give me such an ignorant response? But the center 
of you getting where God wants you to be is for you to understand the nature of the fact that you're chosen. I, I know things are breaking apart, but the Bible says... If you know Christ, you're chosen. I know that you go through depression. I know that you go through ups and downs. I know you feel bipolar. I know you feel schizophrenic. But the Bible specifically says, fam, that you're chosen. Oh, I know you don't like it right now, but if you up in something real thick, like you need to be reminded of that. Chosen. In other words, the situation that you're in doesn't dictate the posture of your soul. The situation that you're in doesn't stop choosing from being a reality. In other words, God doesn't look at the atmosphere, then chooses us. He looks at himself, then chooses us, and situations going up and down doesn't change that choosing. Oh, man. So I, I know every now and then I need to hear that joint. I need to hear every now and then, I'm cho dang, I'm chosen. Dang, it don't feel like it right now, but let me connect to that reality, God. But listen to what he says. He connects it with something. Because I'm going to explain this in connection because actually verse 2 modifies the word exile for those of you who are English majors. And we'll talk about that in a second. Exiles. Now, I'm going to spend some time on this word. This is a very important word in the Christian vocabulary because Christians must become deeply acquainted with what it means to be in exile. The word here, exile, points back to the LXX or the Subtuagent, the same word used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, Law, Prophets, and Writings in the book of Jeremiah. And it's a word that points to a season and time where in the book of Jeremiah, because of Israel's idolatry, because of their unwillingness to flesh out God's mission, for their unwillingness to worship the Lord, their God, and him only, because of their unwillingness to do that, God suspends them from the covenant. In other words, what God does beautifully is God puts them under a state of discipline. And they were to be exiled to Babylon and then eventually Persia because Persia took over Babylon. And one of the things that Jeremiah was told is you're going to prophesy and these jacked up stiff neck folk will not listen to you. But the only way that I can get them to listen to me is to put them in exile. Now, when I put them in exile, although they are away from Mount Zion, although they are away from Jerusalem, they are still required to show me off. Jeremiah 29, I know y'all like the 11th verse, but you got to go to verse 3 through 7. Right. We like to jump. Yeah, I know the plans he has for me is good and not evil, but you got to read chapter 1 through 29 to understand what good looks like to God versus what good looks like to us. Oh, man, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I think, th don't, don't laugh at me. I, I know somebody, I know somebody, I know somebody out there because you already got an imagination of what good is in your mind. And so when God has to, see, this is what the thing about the Christian life, God is always jacking up our view of what good is. He loves to do it because he sees goods and things that man doesn't see good in because he's on a whole different wavelength. He's a he's holy other type dude, you know what I'm saying, all over here with his, you know what I'm saying. And so right here, when we talk about elect exiles, 
when we go back to Jeremiah and we look at the use of this word, um, God takes them away from something and they become strangers in a land that they don't know. They're no longer indigenous to. It's a city. Jerusalem is pretty small. Babylon's thing is it's a little off kilter. And God has said, when you go there, I got several things I want you to do, fam. Don't be giving your wives to them, your daughters to them. I don't want you to do that. And don't, don't be taking them as your wife. Vice versa. He said, but then I also want you to plant in that city. I want you to build in that city. And I want you to pray for its welfare because in its welfare, you will find welfare. In other words, I want you to represent my reign, bring practical shalom to this context, even though you're in a frustrating environment. And so I know we in Philly, we really understand that, don't we? But, but then he goes here and we look at it from this perspective. You got to understand. See, for them, it, they were in exile because of discipline. But see, in this book, 1 Peter, they weren't in exile because of discipline. They were in exile because of deliverance. <laughs> in other words, they were exiled they were experiencing a position of, be, of feeling like they're in an awkward context in light of God's calling and choosing of them for salvation. But when you put the two words together, it means that they were chosen uh, to be exiled, chosen to be ostracized, chosen to be st strangers, and chosen to be pilgrims. Wow. Chosen to be pilgrims. The word can point to pilgrims. One writer says, of one who stays for a while as an alien in a place of sojourning. A temporary residency. Sojourning, stranger. Figuratively of Christians as not counting this earth as their home. In other words, for the believer, earth is not, this present earth is not home. The new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, is our permanent home. Matter of fact, the body that you're in is not your permanent home. Not, not, oh, I won't get ahead of myself because I'm about to dive into something real quick. But he wants them to realize that it's kind of like this struggle that I want to talk about. This, this being comfortably uncomfortable. Stay with me on that because there's a paradoxical dichotomy that believers must be able to connect to to be a proper a pilgrim in a strange land. In other words, you're always supposed to feel uncomfortable. Another writer says a stranger, a sojourner, not simply one who's passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down, however briefly, next to or among a particular native people group. The idea denotes us as being foreigners and pilgrims. Being a pilgrim points to us being on a journey. Say, I'm on a journey. Oh, I hope you understand that you're on a journey, people. That you are on a journey, a pilgrim, and you are spiritually backpacking through earth. Your role is to pinch, pitch a tent and represent God with an eye for eternity, but also an eye for now. In other words, in other words we don't get stuck in eternity dreaming about what it's going to be like because that's why Jesus said, they said, teach us how to pray. He says, our father 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even Jesus' prayer displays the fact that we are going to be uncomfortable yet comfortable. But the question is in the text is where does our comfort come through? I like what, the, the, way, the way my man Eugene Peterson in long obedience in the same direction describes being a pilgrim. He said, being a pilgrim tells us we are people who spend our lives going someplace. Going to God and whose path for getting there is the way Jesus Christ. We realize that this world is not home and set for or set our faces for the Father's house. Jesus says, I go in, in, in John 14 to prepare a place for you for where I am, you may be also. Pilgrim's Progress, a, a classic anthology of this reality that capsulizes um, allegorically what it looks like for the believer to be on a journey, for the believer, stay with me, y'all, uh, for, for the believer to be on a journey, for the believer to be a pilgrim. The classic allegory um, talks about, it illustrates, of course, every man or Christian is depicted as having a vast array of experiences as after, uh, 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 after trusting Christ, he, uh, he journeys to Mount Sinai, the struggle he experienced in receiving salvation and then to find the journey from the house of deliverance, the cross, Calvary, to Mount Zion, a mighty journey. I want you to understand that your Christian process that, that you're going through on planet Earth is a pilgrimage. And it's crazy that they're going through all of these difficulties, all of these frustrations, and Paul tells them, that you are naturally, you're chosen, but also things are going to continue to feel funny. In other words, your whole Christian life is going to be wrecked with feeling funny. So although we are called heavenward, though, it does not omit our earthly responsibility. Earthly responsibility does not omit our heavenly identity. Heaven must influence earth through the pilgrim people of God. So the Christian, for us, the believer, our house is the presence of God. In other words, that's why Revelation 20 says, it says, for the tabernacle of God is among men. Now, most tabernacles are enclosures. But when God settles on planet Earth among his pilgrim people, it says the tabernacle of God is among men. The tabernacle of God is euphemistic of his throne. Now, we know God is spirit, so it literally won't be a physical throne, but it will be his presence that enthrones around his people and becomes an eternal house for them to spend eternity with him forever. So we will spend eternity uh, in his grace. We will spend eternity in his mercy. We will spend eternity housed in his love. If you want to know what the bricks of God's presence is it's him himself it's not some type of physical building and so through this life God chooses or chooses not to give us sneak previews of those coming attractions so your life is normal if you are comfortable and discomfortable at, uh, uh, not comfortable at the same time what do I mean by comfortable comfort we are to find comfort in our relationship with God through Christ 
being chosen is central to the reality of the Christian. The, the thing we find comfort in is the fact that the wrath of God has been satisfied and that God no longer has a beef with us. There are great comforts in the abundant life. But then there's the discomfort part. The discomfort comes with being feeling truly ch uh, chosen but struggle with the world that they live in at least sometimes. As those who are called to be with Jesus in reality, the fallen world in all its brokenness, disappointment, less than ideal results, etc. Would, 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 we, we would allow these fallen reminders to help us to long for our glorification. See, see, if you're going through life and you like the world a whole lot, and nothing jargs you, nothing frustrates you. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he doesn't automatically bring all the redemptive works of the cross on purpose so that we can continue to yearn for eternity. Because if he brings all that the cross has for it practically, then we'll, he knows that we'll enjoy what the cross brings in its enjoyment without wanting him. And so what happens is, is you have to go through financial struggle every now and then. Oh, man, I know we don't like to hear that. Every now and then something has to break down. Every now and then you got to have a bad argument with somebody. <laughs> every now and then I got to have and know what it's going to do. See, some of us just want to get through the situation. That's not the right response. The right response is Maranatha. <laughs> I'm sick of this. I, I was praying to God the other day and I was just frustrated with some stuff. I, I was walking around. I said, God, you know what? I'm sick of this world. I said, I love my wife. I love Epiphany. I love my son. I love my family. I like water ice. I like cheesesteaks. But I'll be doggone. God, I want to come to glory. Like, don't get so comfortable with planet Earth. Don't be afraid to hate this planet. Don't be afraid to. I know some of y'all like skipping around like everything's okay, but listen, everything sometimes is not okay. It's okay to admit it and look heavenward. Because <laughs> sometimes when God chooses not to deliver you, the only thing you got to look at is heaven. And the question is, when God gives you a picture of heaven, will it be enough? I was listening to Rob Parsley the other day on Breakthrough. He preached a, a banging gospel. Then he began to apply it. And I was looking at my wife. I, I looked at my wife, and, and he began to say, this. He said, he talked about pre-fall, the state before the fall. Then he talked about the fall. Then he talked about the cross. But then he talked about renewal. And I, I, was, I was struggling with his renewal because he says, everything that, that the cross brings comes now. So he basically said, we are never to be sick because the cross brings it now. 
He said we are never to have financial struggle because the cross brings it now. He says we are to never to have frustrations in relationships because the cross brings it now. And if you are not experiencing all that the cross brings now, you are not experiencing the Christian life. And as I look at the New Testament, it testifies that that's some punk information. Anybody can punk out and try to imagine life differently. That's why I say, what do you do when not Satan is your problem, but what do you do when God is your problem? I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus, and get out of this and get out of that. Go to the pit of hell, which no, like, he's not going there. He's wandering about seeking who he may devour, so you can't put him in hell. That's a whole other discussion. Devil, I rebuke you in the name. I rebuke, I rebuke, I rebuke. Now, what if God has you on a pilgrimage? And he's the one that said, he laughing. Many rebuking Satan, but it's us, so you can't rebuke us. But then their theology says, God wouldn't do, my God wouldn't do that. Well, which God are we talking about? Because as we go through the New Testament, as we go through 1 Peter, we got a whole number, like these people frustrated because they've been praying, God let me out, God let me out, God let me out. And God is like, nah. And some of you are going through right now because you know God ain't going to let you out. And you're not properly reminded of the fact that you're chosen, but you're chosen to feel like everything's strange. You're always supposed to feel like everything's strange. That's how you were spiritually wired when you trusted Jesus. You were wired to have one foot in heaven and the other foot on earth, but the other foot on earth is influenced by heaven, yet still yearning for heaven. Not the place of heaven. Not the place of heaven, but the person who is enthroned in heaven. Sometimes all you have to hold on to is the God of heaven. When God chooses not to answer your prayers in your time, or when he says, I'm going to leave this as a thorn in your flesh for the rest of your life so that you never be prideful and never get comfortable. But I'm going to choose by my sovereign ruling, by my sovereign will, to let this continuously be a perpetual issue. Because when you don't have a thorn in your flesh, you don't pray. When everything goes right, you just get up from your bed, brush your teeth, wipe the sleep out of your eyes, eat some oatmeal, take a shower, get your gear on, and leave. But then all of a sudden, the king of glory does this. Throws a curveball. And when he, I, I like the way the Hebrew in Jonah chapter 1 is, is deep. It says, in the Hebrew, the English doesn't give it, give it a sense. It says, and the Lord hurled a storm at the water. That's the literal translation. God pitched a storm. What happens in your life if God throws a storm at you? Try rebuking a storm that he created. See, and you ain't grown in the faith until you weathered some stuff. Everything's all peachy all the time. If everything, in other words, when you're a foreigner, you're struggling, you're frustrated. And it's like, God, I, I know, I mean, I know I ain't got no reason to be tripping. 
I just want, I, I'm like, I'm frustrated right now, God. Just for real? For real, for real. I'm frustrated. I'm struggling. I want to represent you. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with pride. I'm struggling with, I'm, but God, I, I, you know what? I want to push through this because I know that I'm still called in the midst of this fallen trash called a planet to represent you. And I know one day you're going to make it. Now, I'm not talking about everything. I'm not saying that the gospel doesn't bring anything now. Don't get me wrong. God does heal supernaturally. But it's not automatic necessarily. And so what we have to begin to think through is either God has to change or our thinking about him has to change. And so as we look at, at, at this idea, we only got through this one word, I'm sorry, but but, but, but it's, it's, it's just looking at this idea of us at the same time being chosen on one hand, but feeling strange on the other hand, walking through life like, God, I'm, I know I'm supposed to be here, but I know on the other hand, I'm not supposed to be here. Somebody going to get that on the way home. I'm supposed to be here, but I'm not supposed to be here. And so, so our desire as the pilgrim people of God it's to live out this reality no matter what God allows to come our way. So when Peter talks to the people in Asia Minor, this is great information for them. I was reading one of the commentaries. I like to read a lot of commentaries after I do my exegetical work. After I do my work into my observation, interpretation, application, all of that. I like to go into my, and, and, and look, at my look at my, all that. Then I, then I like to go and read the commentaries and see how we talking to each other. And the church fathers, I like to talk to them too. I like to talk to Luther. I like to talk to Calvin. I'm not having a seance. I'm just reading their writings. <laughs> and so, so I like to see what, what some old heads in the faith said about it. And, and, and one of the, one of the, one of the um, guys, I think it was Scott McKnight in his NIV application commentary. Get that commentary series. Any of y'all, that's a banging commentary series. Um, real good because it's not so theological and it's not so, it helps you out. But what's interesting is that he says something I'll never forget. He says, he says, most people don't work through 1 Peter because what is in 1 Peter seems alien to Western culture. But he was talking to some people in Eastern culture, and just like we have favorite verses like the Psalms, uh, 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 um, I'm glad when they said unto me, come into the house of the Lord, um, um, let every breath, that, uh, everything that have breath, pray, all of the verses that we like in the Psalms, right? That's not over in the Middle East. He said, that's not our favorite books of the Bible. He said, our favorite book in the Bible that's most quoted is 1 Peter. He said, one of the, he said, one, he said, because know why? Because that's how we feel. He said, you Westerners don't know what it's like because you've been duped into thinking everything's okay. <laughs> he said, but it's not. And so we have the reality of the fact that things aren't okay because they're not okay. And so we have to deal with the fact that they're not okay by looking at the God who is okay. But y'all think everything is okay. And, and so I, I was looking at that and I was blown away by it. Let's, let's move forward in the verses. He says, to those who are ex, 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 exiles, and I'm going to close it off, and are dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Most people try to say that this is written to Jews only because of the, of the word diaspora or the scattering. But you can't say that because when you look at chapter 2, um, you look at verse, I believe it is 10 and verse 12. It points us to the fact that it says, you who were not a people are now a people. And so because of that reality, we can see clearly that it's not only written to Jews, but it's written to Gentiles. 
and because of some type of persecution, they were either already scattered or became scattered at that time. And so not only Jews were seen as dispersed, scattered people, um, but also Gentiles who are in Christ were seen as dispersed and scattered people. So believers were scattered all over about, it was about 130,000 square miles. Well, all of these believers were scattered all over the place as exiles. And so when we look at the idea of pilgrims, well, what should we take away from being a pilgrim? Think we got to see our life in progress, that our life is going somewhere. Listen, God wants our life to go somewhere. I'm not talking about a motivational speech where you can be who all you can be or be who you want to be. I'm talking about, in other words, our life is supposed to move forward in God's economy. Not only that, it calls us, being a pilgrim calls us to be patient. Some of us want everything now. But if you're going to be a biblical pilgrim, you have to learn patience. Some of us want to blow up. We want to blow up your weight and everything. That's, you know, God may shut you down. But the question is, can you be comfortable with his place? Or if he does, quote unquote, blow you up, do you see it in light of his glory or for your own desire? So we got to be patient. We got to learn patience. Slow down. Stop running so fast, especially those of us who are young. We want everything now. We want everything fast. Everything has to. No, be patient. Being a pilgrim means you're moving through life and letting the providential work of God. That doesn't mean you're passive, but it does mean that you have a posture that says, God, um, as you open up doors, I'm going to grab what you allow me to grab. Whatever you don't allow me to grab yet, I'll wait for it until you're willing to give it if you're going to give it to me. Patience. So as a pilgrim, you got to learn to slow your roll. And love each season that God places you in. Please, I I didn't mean to talk about this. Please don't be in a season and try to rush through it. It doesn't work. God doesn't skip grades. Because you know a lot. You're too smart, so he's going to skip your grade. In God's economy, it doesn't matter how much you know. Whatever he wants to fashion in your soul, he won't let you graduate from that grade until you deal with what he wants you to deal with in that particular time, in that particular season, and in that particular, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, I'm just, I'm just trying to let you know, don't rush because it doesn't work. And rushing catches up with you because when you begin to rush, God will laugh and say, I'm going to slow you down anyway and move you back to where you were supposed to be and make you be patient in the way that I wanted you to be patient and you in the place where I wanted you to be in the first place, but you wanted to go before me. So now I got to snatch you from here and put you way back in kindergarten. Hello, strangers. Hello, exiles, chosen people, people who got awkward lives, who feel like perpetual adolescents, who's on, you know, like you ever seen a guy who's like in in junior high school, who his feet is growing, but he's still short. Um, And you know what I'm saying? He trips over his feet a lot. You know what I'm saying? Like, 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 that's a good, like, like you feel strange. So in other words, patient with the problem, wanting to be in, in 12th grade, but you're still in the seventh grade. <laughs> Patience. But then possession. You got to know what you have. That's him. Now I'm going to dive into the second point. I'm going to try not to stay on this point long. I'm going to try to finish this in 10 minutes. Okay. So second point, the Godhead has invested and the Christian's ability to be faithful. (laughs) 
man, like, this is a tri, this is what's, what we call in academics a triad construction. What we call is when we clearly see in a text, Father, Son, and Spirit. I could just jump out this window and hold this microphone and just swing outside right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I'm just excited about this, man. But, um, but, but like every time I see Father, Son, and the Spirit together in the Bible, it's just something about it. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 but the Godhead, the Godhead, the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, equal in essence, different in person. Yet there's a hierarchy. Look at it. Verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Stop. 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 Don't go too fast. He says, listen, these three statements, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, obedience to Christ, and the sprinkling of his blood, modifies the word elect here. In other words, chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father, Chosen in the sanctification of the spirit and chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood. Now, let me explain it. Let me explain it. Now, we were chosen to be foreknown by the father. Dang, that's crazy. So before the father foreknew us, he chose us to be foreknown by him. Woo. I like that. I'm feeling good about, you know what I'm saying, being in the kingdom. Foreknowledge. Now, most of us think, many of us have a man-centered view of God. In other words, we think that God, in eternity past, nudged the son on the shoulder and was like, man, look at Drake's. He's killing it. Let's save him. Oh, no, 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 no. Look at Ock. Ock's going to trust me. So since he's going to trust me, let me foreknow him. In other words, God's cheating in the game. So man is sovereign and God isn't sovereign. If he looks at what we'll do and responds based on what we'll do, based on his choosing, that means that God is sovereign. I mean, man is sovereign and God isn't. Because you like you choosing him. Jesus says, you didn't choose. I chose. Ouch! So what God does is he looks and he sees, excuse my language, doo-doo stains in your soul, trifling, dirty, diaper souls, caked all on you, just trifling, gooey, dusty, gutter, sewage trash, old garbage souls. And says, I'm going to save him. I know that's rugged because you're going to ask the other question. Well, what about the... No, see, that's see, that's your problem. You're whataboutting things. And when you what about, you begin to become unthankful. And in, in, in your what about, you begin thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. That you actually have the right to ask questions about God, who is in the heavens... 
and, and, and is on his own with his. So it says we were chosen by the Father to be foreknown. So God doesn't look at what we're going to do in response to it. God is sovereign in his own prerogative. So the Father divinely foreknows us. Right? And then, let me just read something about the divine election. Divine election that, uh, that uh, uh, severed their ties with the society to which they belong is more than just predestination in mind, in the mind of God in eternity past. It begins there, but finds his historical expression in the social experience of individuals in the community. So when he's talking about this, he's not just talking about the fact that they were chosen in the past, but he's also talking about that foreknowledge that he had of them in the past has to do with how they should function right now. In other words, the reasoning behind his choosing. That leads to us not just talking about the Father, but now talking about the Spirit. Now, Peter does something different than most do. See, Paul usually says the Father did something, the Son did something, and the Spirit did something. But he does something different here. Don't, don't miss out on how he structured it in this passage. Y'all still with me? He said, it says in the passage that we are chosen in sanctification of the Spirit. Complex wording. In other words, this is crazy. The Holy Spirit knows God's foreknowledge. And this is not, the, see, there's the, the several sets of sanctification. There's, there's positional sanctification. There's progressive sanctification. And then there's practical or ultimate sanctification. Most people, when they read this, think that God is talking about progressive sanctification. In other words, spiritual emphasis to spiritual maturity. The focus of these verses is not once you become a Christian. He's pointing them back to God's role in them becoming a Christian. Did you get that? And so when he's talking about sanctification, he's talking about positional sanctification. What is he saying that the Spirit does? He said the Spirit's role in our salvation is to apply our salvation to us. So the Holy Spirit, first off, is not under your command. Let me just say that. Can it, uh, anyway. See, some people think they can tell the Spirit what to do. Get over here, Holy Spirit. Um, come here. Um, in the name of Jesus, do. And the Spirit is looking at you like you're crazy. He said, I'm two seconds from sending you to glory right now. We forget he's everything that God is without being one of the other persons. So that means he's sovereign. So he's not a sucker. All right. So what he does is he's the one that applies our salvation to us. So what he does is he sets us aside for salvation. In other words, God sends the edict or the decree that someone's going to be saved and the spirit actually goes and gets the person. The spirit is a beast. The spirit is a beast. But anyway, my bad. But I'm, I mean, I'm tripping off the spirit because he, he goes and gets you. God says, I want to say so-and-so. I got you. Whack up. He go get him. Now, let me explain what is going on here, though. He not only goes and gets you, 
He turns you from sinner into saint. The Holy Spirit actively sets you aside as a vessel of mercy. Not you. God, I'm ready. Clean the brother off. Shower me up. Bubble it on down, God. Nah. That's not what happens. The Holy Spirit goes and gets us and announces us as holy without our help. He sets us aside because God has sovereignly decreed for your, your, your life to be designated for special usage. In other words, it's not the same as everybody else. In, in other words, I'm using you for a specific task. And the spirit is the one that actively does that. So we were chosen to be cleaned off. We were chosen to be set aside for a task. We were chosen to be used how God wants to use us. That's the point of positional sanctification. Is he tells you how you're going to be used. He tells you. Your life is not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God is going to throw massive amounts of curveballs your way. And you're going to need this information. I'm telling you, you're going to get it twisted when you get a, a, when you get a right hook. You're going to need to know you set aside for something. You'll be like, God, all oh, this hell breaking loose. You know what I'm saying? God, it's something. God, I mean, he got to be for something. I mean, it just can't be just fate. Without divine perspective, life is devilish, demonic, and frustrating. But see, our initial sanctification knows that everything that God throws our way has meticulous purpose. He's telling them this before he even gets in the prize. He's just telling them, listen, I want you to meditate on who you are in him. So that means, that means, brothers and sisters, you can't dictate what your life is going to be like. Because God, God, that doesn't mean we sit back. But that does mean that he has a specific purpose for it. Now I want to get to the sun because I promised y'all I was going to be 10 minutes on this. We got plenty of time by the Lord's grace to go through the rest of the book. But let me, let me, let me move ahead. All right, last phrase. Chosen. Oh, this is what you should do. You should take a pen and you should take, take the word elect and make three arrows. You should put an arrow and put it in front of according, or you can just write the word elect or chosen in front of according. Put elect or chosen in front of the uh, I-N right after the comma, in, then put chosen or elect right in front of for obedience. So now, we were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. We were chosen in sanctification of the Spirit, Him setting us aside, chosen in that, right? Guess what else we're chosen for? We're chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ, listen, and the sprinkling with His blood. I don't have time to walk through it. Read it on your own time. Exodus 
chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Now, listen, he's talking here not about obedience to the Christian life per se. He's talking about, th th this is basically what we call in language a hendiadis. What does that mean? Hendiadis means that both of these are actually one thing or one event describing it in two ways. Obedience and sprinkling. Obedience and sprinkling. Obedience and sprinkling. Romans chapter, um, let, me, let me see where I'm at. Rome, Romans talks about this idea of being obedient to the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 says obedience of faith. Romans chapter 16 verse 26 talks about our obedience and conversion. Uh, the, the, uh, in other words, Romans 15, 18 says obedience from the Gentiles. Uh, Romans 10, 14, 17 says not all have obeyed the good news. Jesus says that you are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. In other words, in other words, inherent in their call to salvation is obedience or obeying the gospel. Now, he's not talking about obeying the gospel for sanctification in the process, but obeying the gospel in relation to God, causing us through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Spirit of God. So listen, the Father chooses you, the, the, the Holy Spirit uh, sanctifies you, sets you aside, gives you the faith, gives you the ability to believe based on convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and then now you're able, based on God's regenerating power through the Spirit to say yes. And it says obedience, for obedience to Jesus Christ, that is the gospel, but then the sprinkling of his blood. When you look back in Exodus 24, and then I'm going to close. When you look back in Exodus 24, Moses called the people of God to obedience to the covenant. In other words, what he does is he calls them to obedience, then he, he kills an animal he takes the blood and sprinkles it on them. In other words, the sprinkling and the obedience is really one thing. Them saying yes to a relationship with Yahweh. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, believers, do you understand who you are in him? I'm not trying to get you a big head, believers, he's saying. But he said, because obviously you can't have a big head because the work of salvation is a work of God. So you can't have a big head. But the thing that gave them the most perspective in being socially ostracized and frustrated was the fact that they were chosen to wander, to be pilgrims, and for everything not to always be all right. They were chosen for that. But it's rooted in the work of the Godhead, causing them to be in the predicament that they're in. Through God's foreknowledge, through the Spirit's sanctification, and through the Son's cleansing work. And so the Godhead each have a stake in our salvation. And, and uh, the Godhead has three points, and we have zero points on the board. In God's economy, that's a winning game. And so I pray that as you struggle, that as you go through, that who God created you to be, you will become acquainted with that reality and not be frustrated, not be bent out of shape, but begin allowing the potter, 
allowing the potter to have his own work in your life. And, say, and saying, God, I, I, I know this, some stuff is caused by us. And we'll talk about that when we go in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. I can't wait, y'all. We're going to talk about how to deal with government. We're going to talk with how to deal with the workplace. We're going to talk about a wife's role. Uh-oh. We're going to talk about a husband's role. We're going to talk about all believers' role. Then we're going to talk about elders, what an elder's supposed to do. We're going to talk about the fact that we all royal priests and priestesses. We're going to walk through some wonderful things. But I hope that you can stay tuned through chapter 1 because I'm telling you, without chapter 1, the rest of the book doesn't make any kind of sense. And so trek with us together. And maybe you're here today and you were like, Dag, things are strange, but I don't have any perspective. And maybe because you don't know the God who gives perspective. Maybe you're here today and all, maybe you're here and you're like, I'm comfortable. I don't see nothing wrong with me. That's a problem. Maybe you're discomfortable. Don't have any perspective. That's a problem. But what's beautiful about the fact is God tells us that much of our problem has to do with us being sinners. Sinners, tore up from the floor up, jacked up people, separated from the life of God, and are in desperate need of his grace. He sent Jesus to satisfy his wrath, his frustration with humanity and creation by dying on the cross for our sins. And if you trust in him... And him alone, not Christ and, not Christ and, but Christ and Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, you can be saved right now. If you repent of your sin, admitting that you're jacked up and that God's not, and that he's able to take you from being darkly jacked up to being lightly infused with his son. If that's you and you want to be, you, 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 I mean, you, 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 you sense the spirit talking to you, trust Christ right now. Believe in him, but repent of your sin. Turn from your wickedness. Every person in here is wicked, deceitfully wicked. Think about wickedness, incline towards wickedness. And if you admit that, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much community service you do, no matter how much, because I like that at the end of this passage, it says grace and peace. He's talking about efficacious grace here, not just common grace. So I, I, I was sharing the block, a gospel with a dude on the block, and he was just telling me how much about himself, why he doesn't need salvation. He was naming everything that had to do with common grace. God feeds me. God clothes me. God helps me to pay my bills. Uh, I, I, I like life. Like, those are things that you don't have to be a Christian to have. <laughs> but in order to have a Christian life where life has perspective, but ultimately not just perspective, but relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then that's when God dispenses efficacious grace and causes you by his grace to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If that's you, we got some cards on the back table. Fill them out. We want to contact you. Our life coach team wants to connect with you and talk to you about um, if you haven't, if you got more questions about it, that's fine. We don't try to rush people into salvation. We believe in discussing it with people so that people can understand the cross, understand who they are, understand it's, it's not good to just be so hungry for conversion that we don't explain things because that produces false conversions and make people think they're saved and they're not. So we're praying by God's grace that you'll be one of those ones that God snaps 
snatch up and that you would trust him by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone after you repent of your sin. Father, we thank you.